For six months, from the day I qualified for Paralympics GB to the day I stood on the block at the Paralympics in Beijing, I didn't actually swim a single stroke of breaststroke. Every week on The Resilient, we speak with someone about a landmark moment in their lives. Pivot points, peak experiences. Those times that define who a person is, is different from who they were before. What's unusual about my guest this week is that two of these moments happened at the very same time. And yet, she didn't fall apart. She didn't crumble. In fact, she did the most extraordinary thing instead. She defied every expectation, every logical conclusion, every prediction. She's Liz Johnson. Now, some things in Liz's life were planned. Others were not. Some things she had to live with. Others she had the power to change. Some things she's had the great fortune to have a community of family and friends willing her on. Others she's had to do completely on her own. So what happens at the most crucial moment of your life and the thing that you have leaned on to get you across that finish line is no longer there. This is The Resilient from flowerapp.com. I'm Alex Kratoski. So I was born with a condition called cerebral palsy and it affects me as a hemiplegic person so the whole of the right side of my body is affected kind of like a stroke patient really so there's a large weakness down that side and I struggle with coordination as well. Do you know what your parents reaction was to when you were born? So my my mum was just like well we've got to get on with it she was a teacher so I guess she was used to working with children she was used to not all children being the same so having different ways to bring out the best in each child. So that was really helpful. And she kind of had that attitude, well, you know, it could be worse. It's not the end of the world. There's no reason why we can't make it so that you can't do what everyone else can do. We're just going to have to think of new ways to do it. Whereas my dad, he found it a lot tougher, I think. He'll say to anyone that asks that he's very grateful that my mum was able to spring straight into action because if they both had that freeze moment, then... I probably wouldn't be how I am today. Liz's mum's attitude naturally trickled down. My mum was always very open with me and she was like, yes, but you, you've got cerebral palsy, that's what makes you different. That person over there is wearing glasses, that makes them different. Like, everybody has got something wrong with them. Nobody's got this perfect world. Everybody's got a disability of some kind. And I was just lucky that you could see what mine was. Liz's first lesson in taking control of her own destiny came at an early age, guided, of course, by her mum. When I was at primary school, and I was probably about seven or eight, we were had the opportunity to learn a musical instrument. And obviously, there's a lot that I couldn't, wouldn't be able to play. I mean, I played the recorder, but then when it got to actually learning a proper peripatetic instrument, she was like, well, we'll just have to go and see. So we went to the music shop one Saturday morning and we, we went around pretty much every instrument they had so that I could find one that I was able to hold. So I ended up playing the cornet because I only needed three fingers for the valves. At that point, she was like, 
Nobody else that you don't want to tell needs to know that this wasn't your first choice of instrument. But it doesn't mean that you can't play a musical instrument like everybody else. This is only a problem if you want to make it a problem. So what anyone else thinks of you doesn't matter. And if you choose not to tell anybody why you've chosen the cornet, that's your choice. As far as they're concerned, you're playing a musical instrument like everybody else and, and this is your musical instrument of choice. So that was one of the big, the first times I think that I really realised that I could do whatever I wanted. I just had to think outside the box. Liz quickly learned what she could change in her life and what she couldn't. And crucially, she also learned what parts of her life that she had to hack. I played all sports when I was at school. It was only really as I got a bit older and I decided I wanted to be competitive in them that I had to make a choice. And a lot of the team sports weren't really available to me past playing at a school level just because they didn't take into consideration my impairment and so the rules didn't suit me. I love tennis. If I could choose a sport, it would probably have been tennis, but at the Paralympics they only have wheelchair tennis and obviously against able-bodied peers, as I got older and my impairment became more obvious, then I, I'm fast for a disabled person, but I wasn't, I wasn't quick enough or I couldn't stay on my feet long enough without falling over to play it to a level, the same sort of competitive level I was able to swim at. No one needed to know that swimming wasn't her first choice. I always loved swimming, and I learned to swim when I was four years old, I think, so that my parents, basically, we could go on holiday and they could relax and not worry that I was going to drown. I went to mainstream swimming lessons, and I can do everything that everybody else does, but I don't always do it in the way that everybody else does. And I sometimes need more time to figure it out. And so in a half an hour swimming lesson, I'd sometimes feel the pressure because my, my classmates would they'd say swim across the width, kicking your legs or something, and they'd get the board and they'd kick off and off they'd go. And I'd start to kick and I wouldn't go in a straight line or I wouldn't be going as fast as them. And I would get myself into a situation. And then after the initial 30 minutes, I'd be like, right, Mum, by tomorrow I need to be able to do this. And so then me and my mum would practice it at home or we'd go swimming extra or we would do whatever needed doing. So she would be my person that would help me think of ways around or through the obstacle that I was facing or just provide me with the environment to keep practicing it in a calmer environment until I had it. You might by now have realized that when Liz has a goal, there is very little that will get in her way. I wouldn't say that anyone else in my family is as competitive as me. My mum was very competitive in terms of she had a very strong desire to achieve whatever it was, whatever goals you gave. If someone challenged her and said that they couldn't, she couldn't do something, then she'd go out of her way to prove them wrong. So she had the competitive desire in that sense. But I think I, my friends would tell you that I take it to a whole new level, whether it's whoever's going to answer the front door first or the telephone or sit in the front of the car with my sister. I'd race to the front of the car. So yeah, I'm competitive in any any walk of life, I think. It's a sporting champion's occupational hazard. You have to be competitive because there's times when it's so difficult and you're hurting so much and it's really the last thing that you want to put your body through. But that competitive desire is what keeps you going and everyone's got that competitive drive. And when we go when we used to go away on training camps and we were in teams, we were all as bad as each other really. Imagine A squad of fiercely competitive athletes in one room. And now, 
Imagine that same image applied to the fiercest competition of all, the trivia quiz. It would be like they were dangling a Paralympic gold medal at the end of it because I would feel crazy. And, and I, if someone wasn't answering quick enough, I'd be screaming at them, like, no, I, I, I know the answer, I know it, I can do this. There were, there were a lot of people that can be competitive in their sporting environment but manage to park it everywhere else. And I admire those people. And actually, I think sometimes I wish I could be one of those. But um, ultimately, everyone's got that competitive drive. At the age of 10, Liz competed in her first national swimming event, and that opened her eyes to what ultimately was possible. There were people there that were going to the Paralympic Games. And I was like, well, they're just normal people. They're not superhumans. They're just people that swim. One of her friends swam that year. And um, he, I remember him coming back from Atlanta and he had a silver medal. And he's got exactly, pretty much, the same impairment as me. Like, as, as it goes, finding two people who are the most similar with how their impairment affects him, me and Sasha are quite similar. And I was like, yes, yeah. so he, him coming back and me seeing the medal and it being real, and him being a real person, made me think, yeah, I can do this. What was it that, that was inside of you that, you that gave you the impression that you had a shot at winning gold at the Paralympics? My head was quite screwed on from an early age. So I was very matter-of-fact about it, and I plotted, basically, how I would get to where I wanted to go. That's amazing. I can imagine the spreadsheets. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know if they even had spreadsheets in those days. <laughs> but life has a funny old way of tripping you up, regardless of how many spreadsheets you might have created. Ten years into her Team GB life and on the path to Beijing 2008, everything was interrupted. And Liz was absolutely powerless to change it. I didn't realise, no one realised, only when you look back, the things start to add up and you're like, oh, maybe that wasn't quite right. Liz's mum phoned to give her some news. She just thought she was having a bad year, you know, like when you're not quite on form. And like, you're not, because she was never ever real. She never went to the doctor and she wasn't like a hypochondriac or anything. So like, she would literally have to be dying, turned out she was, before she would go to the doctor. They found a mass, so she went in to have it removed, and she was like, it was going to be like an overnight procedure. She was going to be home, but then they couldn't do it because her blood pressure was 230 over 170. So they were like, "You should be dead." We're like, "I don't. We can't do this now. We need to do further tests." She phoned Liz a few days later. I was sat on the sofa. I just had come in from training. And I was sat in the sofa in my, in my house that I'd bought whilst I was at university. And my housemate at the time was outside hanging washing on the line. And, uh, and that's when she told us that it was cancer. And then as soon as I hung up, I remember I just burst into tears and I just cried and I cried and I cried and I cried. Because at that point, I realised that this person who always had the answers and, and was always my, the strongest person in my world regardless of what was going on suddenly I realized she wasn't going to be there forever this is happening one year before the Paralympic Games the thing that she and her swimming family had been plotting for a decade with it being Paralympic year I could easily have just thrown myself into swimming and you always think your friends and your family are going to be around afterwards to wait like you think as an athlete you think that's the most important thing and you've got to train and 
but I actually realised that she might last 20 years, you know, but she might only last 20 days. And so I used, I realised that I needed to take the opportunity to spend as much time with her as I could. How did you balance this turmoil in your personal life with your professional life? Swimming gave me an escape and uh, gave me somewhere to go and somewhere a reason that I had to stay focused. So my training was still very structured into everything. So they, that became my my grounding, I guess. I'd always still have to be at the pool at 6 o'clock. And I'd still have to be at the pool at 3 o'clock. So regardless of how miserable I was feeling or, or whatever, if I was going home to see her, or I'd still have to leave to get to the pool. So it gave us all something to focus on, really, I think. How about your teammates? I'm curious about how each each member of that team played a role in your training and how you were processing this, how you were pouring that emotion into the pool. My swimming family kept that bit of normality in it for me. And my physio and my doctor were amazing because my physio, his mum had passed away from cancer before and um, you just got it, I think. And my coach was... My coach was always a bit scared of me, I think. <laughs> so he'd always be like, are you okay? And I'd be like, yep, and then we carry on. And uh, he could see that I wasn't okay, but he could see that my coping strategy was to train harder. So he just provided me with the environment to be able to do that and then be available when I needed him to. The carefully rejigged, very delicate balance between work and life was again disrupted by the realities of terminal diagnosis. It got to the point where I used to hate getting out of the pool and checking my phone because very often it would be just a message saying, I'm back in hospital, can you bring me some pyjamas or something? <laughs> and I'd just be like, ugh. And every time she went in, you never quite knew what to expect until you got there. And then along came the thing that really messed things up. It happened at the Team GB trials. After pounding for months through her mum's diagnosis, using an arm that wasn't really biomechanically up for the job, her shoulder went, and it went with a bang. For the six months leading up to the games, that's right, from the day that she was picked for the team until the moment she stood on the block at competition, Liz could not swim. But rather throw the towel in, frankly like I would have done, Liz relied on a lifetime of rolling up her sleeves and getting on with it. She planned her future in the only way she knew how. I kept the structure of my day the same. So I would go to the pool for six o'clock to do my physio at the pool. And I would go in the gym. We redesigned the program so I was only working on my leg. And I wouldn't swim for the two hours that I was used to swimming for morning and night. But I would be at the pool doing those sessions and I might get in for 20 minutes. And I wouldn't swim, but I could still kick. It was all about controlling what I could. And that was basically the structure. And an old lesson from her mum became a valuable asset. I hadn't told anyone about my shoulder other than the people that needed to know. Because, like, I race when I'm a best friend. And uh, I guess I didn't want everyone else that I was racing to know just how bad it was. She flipped the whole thing round. Rather than getting lost down a rabbit hole of not enough pool time, she decided to celebrate what she was getting, stronger and more powerful in different and unexpected ways. At the same time, though, her mum was getting weaker and weaker. Not for one second did I think after leaving 
on the 23rd of August. I'd never see my mum again. Like, now I don't think about it, and I look back, and I look like, like she was ill. Like, her her legs had swollen, and they were leaking pus. And I remember it being horrific, but I just remember thinking, oh, that's part of it. I didn't ever... I didn't. I guess I didn't put it all together to come out with the final outcome, and I don't think she she didn't ever vocalise it. So she probably knew, but like my boyfriend, he wasn't going to Beijing until because he was in a different squad. His squad weren't leaving until the 29th of August. So I think she probably knew what was happening. I think she she made it so that we were both there before anything went wrong, so that neither of us came back. Okay. You could argue that the deck was stacked against her. But at her own admission, she never showed weakness. In fact, her history is an admirable character witness of the resilience and the fortitude that she showed facing what came next. I remember the morning before we went to the airport, I was like, I need to call home. And I tried to, because I tried ringing, but nobody answered. Did my session. Got, we went straight from the pool to the airport. Got to the airport and they didn't have a seat for me or my seat was in the wrong plate or something like that. I, like it was, and like I remember and something else went wrong as well. And I just remember saying, "Oh man, this is the worst day of my life." So we landed in Beijing, and thankfully, because we'd been the reason we'd been to Macau for two weeks was so that when we hit got off the plane, the humidity and the sunshine and that just sheer heat didn't blow us away. And it was just it's exciting because a lot of people have never been to a game before. You're always really interested to see how this village is different from the last one. Everyone's just really excited because all of a sudden it becomes very real that you're at the Paralympic Games. So we went up to our rooms. Team GB had had extra like nice sofas brought in that weren't standard issue. So there were a few extra chairs in there than normal and they were bright red and they were comfortable. And I remember sitting on them and I sat down and my coach Billy came in and he had his mobile phone in his hand and he was like, it's for you. And I thought it was going to be my mum. Because, like I said, I'd been trying to get hold of them. And no one was picking up at home. And my dad was on, on the line. And he was um, quiet. And he was like, oh, I'm at Gramps' house. Like my granddad's. And he told me that my mum had passed away. Like, that night. And then I could have gone home. Like, they had a ticket from... Like, they, were, they would have taken me to the airport. But I kind of had this internal conversation with myself. I was like, you can go home right now. You can go home right now. You can go home if you want, right? You don't know. At this, at that point, I didn't even know if my shoulder was going to hold out for a race. So I could go home. I was like, if you go home, you don't get to trade in. Like she's not going to, it's not going to bring her back. She's not going to be there when you won't get back. And you might never get this opportunity again. So I decided I would stay. It was one week before the most career-defining event of her life. And rather than focusing on her training or her nutrition or even herself, she was having to come to terms with a life-shaking event. I just used to wander around the Olympic Village and I'd go to the games room and play basketball with some of the wheelchair rugby boys. Well, they'll probably get in trouble for that because they probably should have been saving their shoulders. But um, the Paralympic bubble was the best place for me to be because I had enough people to gear me up and cheer me up and just kind of exist with. So I don't think I could have been in a better place, really. The Paralympics aren't just a physical game. They're a mind game, too. 
Liz had to face down her own ideas about her abilities in the pool six months since she'd swum a single stroke. Do you have any rituals that you go through? When we got off the bus, I'd walk into the competition pool and I'd walk around and I'd stand behind the lane I was going to be in and then I would walk around the pool and I'd stop where, the, where our supporters were going to be sat and I'd look up and then I'd walk off and then go to the warm-up pit and do my warm-up. And I raced in the morning. I was like, I need to see exactly what I've got available to me here because I haven't swum properly in six months. She went all out in the heat and qualified fastest for the final. Everyone outside of the bubble was very excited and like just thought it was going to the form guide. But me, I was not okay. Like I was like, oh my gosh, that's just made it worse because that's all I've had. That's all I've got. I might have another like half a second tops. But um, there's no more in there. And I think the girls that I'm racing can go a lot quicker tonight. So I spent the entire day. My friends, we went to the girls' apartment opposite and we watched Sex in the City back to back to back, which is pretty much what we did the entire time, really, from finding out that my mum was dead to actually the racing starting. And then, the moment she'd been preparing for. That's the tough thing about life, isn't it? It just mercilessly keeps on going, regardless. So, in the final, I just went out, and I stood behind a block, and I just, I was so numb and so empty that I just looked at the pool, and I was like, right, it's two lengths, and you've got to get there and back before everybody else. That is it. That is all you have to do. So when they go, I, well, I got on the block, I took a massive breath, and then when the gun went, I just went as fast as I could. Now, they're getting excited, and we are getting excited too for Liz Johnson because she's got the margin. Now, the only worry is, has Sarah Bowen got anything left for Australia? Indeed, has Charlotte Henshaw got anything left? Because she's coming back as well in lane three. The Australian's coming back, there's 15 to go. It's tight, it's too tight for our liking, and no doubt too tight for Liz Johnson as well. She's into the last stages. The Australian is closing on her. It's agony, agony, edging her way towards the last time. She's going to get there, I think she's got there! Fantastic! 141.87! And those people that at home were like, we know you said she won the race, but are you absolutely sure? Because <laughs> the way that they closed down on me in the last 25 metres was insane. And I was drastically running out of pool. And I wanted the wall to come, like, quicker. And I was just started going up and down. Liz may have been on her own in the pool, but her swimming family was there to keep her afloat. So I don't think there was a single person in the, like the British team that wasn't willing me to win that race. I pretty much had the worst prep I could have had in that six months. And then when I hit the wall, I'd always worried about celebrating and then like reading the board wrongly or something. So I made sure that it said number one next to my name and the result was confirmed. And then I just launched myself into the air because I've never been so relieved in my entire life. When did your family come into your mind? Well, my dad and my sister were in the crowd. So uh, I saw them, I could see them straight away. And I was just like, poof. And also it was just great, like I was really glad that I could almost honor my mum's memory by getting the job done. 
Liz repeated her success in London 2012, where she was selected by her swimming family to take the Paralympic oath at the opening ceremonies. She retired in 2016 and is now taking her lifetime of dedication to the sport to Rio to appear in front of the cameras and away from the pool as a commentator for the UK's national coverage. Her dedication to her sport, her family, and her swimming family gave her the grounding to face the everyday and the extraordinary landmarks in her life. You cannot plan everything. You cannot change everything. What you can do is to stay focused on the prize and have faith that every decision and every act has been made with the best in mind. For Liz, that is what got her through. As an athlete, you make loads of life choices to give yourself the best chance of winning. But only one person can win. And so everyone else in that race has made the same life choices as you have and been as dedicated as you have. And on a different day, a different one of them might win. But when you touch the wall and you get that gold medal, then every decision you made and every choice and every, every opportunity you've foregone is almost validated. This is The Resilient from flowerapp.com. Powerful stories from powerful people like you and me.